when the steward tasted the water, the water had become wine. Now, I was told pretty emphatically in my youth that Jesus did not drink wine. I was a teenager when I remember this. I was attending youth group at a friend's church, and the youth minister made this claim. He had this elaborate explanation, this sort of interpretive gymnastics, that the Greek word for wine, it didn't mean wine at all, at least not the way we would think of it. The word wine, he claimed, used in this passage and in other places throughout the Gospels, well, in Jesus' day, that was merely a reference to a distillation process. So when we see wine mentioned in the New Testament, the reasoning goes, whether here at the wedding or later at the table, it's really equivalent, he said, to what we know as bottled water. Apparently, in this logic, Jesus had turned water into better water. Maybe this was Fiji or smart water or something like that, or so this minister claimed. The philosopher and existentialist Soren Kierkegaard has observed something else, though. Kierkegaard writes that in his very first miracle, Jesus turned water into wine. And yet, he says, the church has been so adept at turning wine into water. I wonder just how often we place these sorts of limits. Just how often do we restrict and restrain Jesus? How often do we confine and constrict the possibilities of joy and celebration? How often do we diminish the abundant gifts of God so that they fit all of our choices and all of our categories, limited as they are, of understanding things? And what does this say about our expectations of God? And what does this say about our expectations of ourselves? This is the very first time when Jesus exceeds all of those expectations. Traditionally, it's known as Jesus' first miracle. John deeming it one of the seven signs, so-called signs because these seven moments point beyond themselves to signify the character of God, to reveal the work of God in the world through Jesus. And this first one occurs at a wedding party because Jesus shows up there. Jesus found his way in his life to the feasting and to the celebration and to the joy. You don't have to restrict these things in order to find him. You don't have to go somewhere else far off. You don't have to quiet down. You don't have to center into a meditative posture. Jesus shows up at a wedding feast, after all. And that is so often a setting of such possibility and imagination with the joy and the dancing and the celebration late into the night. I think back on the weddings that I've attended. Maybe you do too. These were occasions where I experienced so fully what Jesus says later in John, that I have come that you might have life and that you might have that life abundantly. Have it literally in a way that overflows, the word says, into the world. And in this passage, Jesus is pointing to that, signifying that abundance, not only with his attendance, but then in the moment when the barrels are empty and all feels depleted and run out, Jesus steps out of the corner to extend the celebration, to enact the abundance that overflows for all people around. You want Jesus to come to your wedding, and you want Jesus to show up in your life too. Because this theme of abundance, it doesn't stop 
here in the Gospel of John. No, these overflowing barrels, they are a sign of so much that is to come. And so not too much later in the story, this abundance finds a man who had been ill for the 38 years of his life, but then he comes to know life everlasting. And then still later after that, in John 9, there is this man who was born blind and separated from his community, and he becomes this sheep in Jesus' fold, knowing the love of the good shepherd who always searches, always finds, always provides. And then later in John, Jesus' friend Lazarus, once dead in his tomb, comes to find himself alive and unbound and sharing fully at the table. And then when everyone thought it was all over, and then when death had finally seemingly ended all of the celebration, when all had run dry, the disciples, they recognize the risen Jesus as they haul in this net that is filled abundantly, overflowing with fish after a night of catching nothing and wondering everything about their futures. That's the abundant life that flows out from this wedding scene. And notice, in this very first miracle, the very first sign, the very first thing that Jesus creates is joy. Let there be light, God says, over the waters in creation. Let there be joy, Jesus says, in the middle of that wedding. Celebration. And not in any restricted way. It's not economical. It's not careful. The very best wine, the text says. It's not carefully measured. It's not meted out limitedly. No, six huge basins, 180 gallons of wine with abundance and blessing filled to the brim of the jars, the text says. No one, that is, needs to leave this party thirsty. No one needs to be left out of the celebration. There is enough there to include all in the joy, and this is such good news. I don't know about you, but I love a party, and a wedding party so full of joy and possibility especially. Through the years, I have prided myself on being among the first to join the dance, which is why I was particularly excited about a recent wedding good friends who said explicitly, emphatically, you need to bring your dancing shoes to this reception. They even asked guests to send in their requests of their favorite songs for the wedding band, leading me to send in Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. Got to Give It Up because it chronicles the nervy night of a man who's too shy to get out there on the dance floor and let loose until finally he gives it up to the music and to the movement. And that's what I was doing throughout the first part of the dancing my wife, Jenny, and I, we had gone out right after the ceremonial first dance. We were wrapped up in it. But some of you know that there's increasingly a tradition, a practice in weddings where the music breaks, the cake is cut, the traditions are honored, and then the music changes and the party ramps up. And those of <clears throat> early middle age and older, shall we say, they sit down or they go home but I did not recognize this moment. <laughs> but my dear spouse surely did, which led my honest, loving partner to grab me by the shoulders and then the face and to say, hey, we need to sit down. You are not a good enough dancer to be out here right now. 
Now, whether I would dispute that or not is not the point. There comes a time, though, I suppose. And then how often do we do this to ourselves? As though the party is not for us, as though the joy is not ours to claim or to revel in. Moreover, though, how, do, how often do we do this to others in our lives? Because if we look around the scene at the joy and the feasting, we notice that for Jesus, a life abundant, it is a life that is shared. In the Gospel of John, abundance always leads to relationship with others. It is never this life of faith just about you and Jesus. This is not individualized or private. Life abundant is about bringing us into relationship with one another in new and transformative ways, and particularly relationship with those who were once rejected or abandoned or forgotten or marginalized. Because when you know the kind Jesus points to, you also notice when it is absent in others. My first year in college, a friend of mine began to notice this. He began to notice the number of people who were poor and sleeping outside near our downtown campus, and he was moved to try to respond in some way. And so my friend Bob came back from fall break, and he had purchased a small camping stove. And he shared this plan with some of us to begin a Tuesday night cookout downtown for anybody who was hungry. Well, we were up for anything, nothing to do on a Tuesday, and so several of us went with Bob that first Tuesday, and then the next, and more, until it became a sort of weekly occurrence, and the gathering became known colloquially about town as Bob's Barbecue. It was always in a different location, sort of an early pop-up, because you can imagine an open flame and a line of hungry people was not always welcome in the same place week after week. It started with us walking around, inviting any, of all, any and all, but soon it became this regular meal. And there was this real sense of community and friendship and relatedness that developed. I was a first-year college student. There were no shortage of lessons for me about the advantages and the privilege of my life, the blind spots and limited vision with which I lived, and all the times that I had failed to notice the realities of poverty. Like early on, when I couldn't understand that some of those who came to eat, most of those in fact, were very specific about how their hot dogs would be prepared. Now some wanted the mustard a particular way, maybe just one line on one side, while others would open the bun to inspect to make sure that it had enough char. No, no, that, not this one, send that one back, put it on the grill again, one man Bill would say, asking us to cook it till it was burned all over. And I remember my shock that my Oscar Mayer offering wasn't appreciated just as it was. Because isn't something better than nothing? Well, no. Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, we don't offer what's easy or convenient. We offer what is abundant. You have kept the best until now, the steward said. It's not the cheap wine that's overflowing. It's not the boxed stuff brought out late in the party when guests are less discerning. No, this is the best wine, the steward says. The best wine because that's what Jesus came to provide for all people, all people. The best. Can we believe this? Can we extend it to others? And moreover, can we accept it for ourselves? 
Walter Brueggemann has said that the great human dilemma of our time is what it has always been, and that is the conflict between abundance and scarcity. Because so often in our world, we see this notion of scarcity, which assumes there's not enough to go around. The best things, they need to be stored and kept and hoarded for oneself. It's a way of life that leads to so much fear and greed and worry and so much inward focus, but over against this, Brueggemann writes, there is this story that we see throughout the revelation of God of generous love. There is this biblical witness of abundance. It begins with praise for God's generosity, singing out, it is good, it is good, it is very good. It declares that God blesses the entire earth, indeed all humankind. It pictures the Creator saying, let there be, and let that be fruitful, and let it multiply. This charge that echoes in the words of Jesus toward abundant life and abundant joy. And we are left to decide which of these ways will govern our living. And how often do we limit it, restrain, and reinterpret it? How often do we place constraints on joy and celebration? Perhaps some of us at some level believe that we don't deserve it. We laugh with hesitation. We dance with nervousness or embarrassment. We reflexively turn to the cynicism that says nothing will ever change. We go home early. Maybe someone taught us to do this. Maybe someone told us this is the way of faith in Christ. Maybe we learned it in some past part of ourselves. Well, who knows where we learn to restrain our joy, to limit abundance. But we did not learn it from Jesus. Because the good news of Jesus once turned water into wine. And what might it spark in our lives? Oh, it might be that it's easier to believe that Jesus never drank wine, that Jesus never feasted. He never gathered together with the dejected or the ostracized and opened up bottles with them to listen to their stories late into the night. Because a limited Jesus is one that I can better understand. His life looks more like mine. A restrained Jesus allows me to keep my expectations low and not get my hopes too sky high for an abundant feast. After all, if I've lived my life a certain way, I want to imagine my Messiah would do the same. And so maybe I so often imagine a limited Jesus because that's the one who is more likely to let me remain just as I am. He's far less likely to call me to start to live my life by this story of God's abundant love where the best things to do with the best things in life is to experience them widely and fully and joyfully and to offer them as extensively as you possibly can. Where even when we're depleted, the party is not over. Where there is one who is ready to step to the center of the feast, the center of our lives, to remind that there are resources and power and strength so far beyond what we can know on our own. That's what happened to these followers of Jesus as the water became wine. The disciples believed in him, verse 11 says. Peter Gomes has pointed out that the greatest miracle in this passage is not, in fact, Jesus' transformation of the element of water into wine, but instead his transformation of something much deeper, that is, the thinking of these disciples. This moment transforms what those who would follow him from their 
would believe about him and then about their world and about themselves even. For those so content simply to ask only for water of a Messiah, to expect to only enjoy that much themselves, Jesus sets out overflowing barrels and begins to tell them about life abundant. And through the life of Christ and the miracle of God's Spirit, they begin to move beyond survival in their day-to-day. They begin to know this life beyond the story of the way things are and have always been. And that's why this first sign points beyond itself to the cross, to the resurrection, to the glory ahead, because at Cana, the gift is wine. But this sign propels us forward to the hour and the time when the gift is new life itself. And on the final night, he gathers them at the table. There is bread there. And you might have noticed that there is wine. And he says, when you drink this, won't you remember me? Remember how the barrels overflowed, yes. But even more, remember how my life overflowed for you. And let that life become your life. This morning, that call and invitation extends to each and every one of us standing around the perimeter of the wedding. So as we step out to follow this one who turned water into wine, friends, let us never again be the ones who turn wine into water. Amen.